what is it about for us that makes us so intrigued by oddity and rare forms? It's like the weirder looking a dog is, the more novel it is, the more salient it is, the more people are aroused by that. Are we truly giving our furry companions the life they deserve? As pet owners, we often assume that we're providing a safe and comfortable environment for our dogs. However, in this thought-provoking episode, certified dog behavior consultant and author Kim Brophy sheds light on the natural context of animals, particularly dogs, and the costs of captivity on their welfare. Join us as we explore the variables that make up an animal's phenotype and the impact of artificial selection on their behavior and overall well-being. Get ready to challenge your assumptions and gain a new perspective on our furry friends. I'm Marika Bell, anthrozoologist, CPDT certified dog trainer, and an animal myself. This is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. Thank you for joining me as we ask, what's the deal with animals? I love this question. What's the deal with animals? <laughs> what do I think is the deal with animals? I think the deal with animals, I, for one, I think is off. They're awesome. So what do you think is the deal with animals? Welcome to today's episode of The Deal with Animals, where we have the pleasure of speaking with Kim Brophy, an applied ethologist and owner of the Dog Door Behavior Center in Asheville, North Carolina. Kim is an expert in canine behavior and her dedication to family dog mediation has earned her international recognition, including the APDT Outstanding Trainer of the Year 2009 and the Best Dog Trainer of WNC for seven consecutive years. But before we jump in, I just want to go over a few changes you may have noticed to the podcast in recent episodes. First, Natasha, your favorite guest editor, and now TDWA newsletter editor, is getting ready to publish the first ever TDWA newsletter. And if you've already signed up for it, we would love your feedback when the first one comes out at the end of May. They'll be monthly after that, so let us know what you like and what more information you'd like to see. If you haven't yet signed up for it, go to the show notes or thedealwithanimals.com to sign up. The second big change is to the website itself. You may not realize this, but it takes money to produce a podcast. So we've been brainstorming ways to bring you the best content, as well as easy ways for you to support the podcast and keep it going. The first is to become a patron and begin to get early access to new content, bonus content, and shoutouts on your favorite episodes. The link is in the show notes and the website. We'll also chat about other ways I can earn your support during the break. So keep listening for shoutouts and the message. Okay now, as a member of the International Society for Applied Ethology and the Association of Professional Dog Trainers and a certified member and past board member of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, Kim has established herself as a leader in the field of animal behavior. Her LEGS, LEGS model of integrated canine science, endorsed by prominent canine scientists like Raymond Coppinger, has been embraced by academics and dog trainers worldwide. Kim's groundbreaking book, Meet Your Dog, her TED Talk, Beyond the Operant BTO Collaborative, numerous public speaking engagements, and radio and podcast appearances have all made a significant impact on the dog behavior world and the general public. Her work challenges us to rethink how we perceive, talk about, and treat our canine companions as a society. 
In today's episode, Kim will share her insights on the importance of understanding our dog's behavior and how her approach can improve our relationships with our furry friends. So sit back, relax, unless you're driving, and let's dive into the world of canine behavior with Kim Brophy. My name is Kim Brophy, and she and her. Thank you very much. Why don't you expand a little bit on your background? Just give us a little overview, and we'll dive in after that. Okay. When I was going to college, undergraduates, I really wanted to figure out how to get an education that could uh, talk about animal welfare, but in a way that wasn't really offered in most traditional undergraduate programs that were available at the time. And at Warren Wilson College, I was able to study applied ethology because they have an integrative studies program there. And so I was able to get a degree in a field that at the time really had no presence in the United States and still largely doesn't. It's a field that is much better represented in Europe. And the emphasis has been a little different here in the U.S., probably reflecting our human bias of dominion and this kind of top-down approach and preference for behaviorism. Whereas in Europe, they've really been looking at this dynamic of what happens to animals when they're under direct human control and what are all the kinds of opportunities and obstacles and complicated variables that need our consideration in those conditions. Okay, so that's a lot to pull apart. Why did you go for applied ethology versus all of the other types? Okay, so when I was in when I went to university, I, like you, wanted to do something in related to animals. My focus was on big cats, actually. I wanted to figure out how to work with big cats. Mm-hmm. And the only way I could think to do that was to go for a zoology degree mm-hmm. because that was generally what was offered. It was like biology or zoology. I, I know that applied ethology was not even offered at my university. Mm-hmm. So how did you find that? How did you realize that that was the, where you wanted to be? It's interesting because I think I found like a weird door into it. I wanted to work with dogs. That was my species of focus from the time I was a little kid because I grew up in a major U.S. city and I didn't have a lot of opportunity to engage with nature around me. I took whatever I could, but actually the dogs were still loose when I was growing up in Atlanta. It's crazy to think that much has changed that quickly. But so that kind of culture of dogs being my door to nature throughout my childhood made me just have this tremendous gratitude and appreciation and obsession for them. So I really wanted to work with dogs, but there were no kind of academic programs, no undergraduate programs for working with dogs. And any zoology programs would have moved me away from dogs as a species of consideration. Even the animal welfare programs that were available at the time focused more on farm animals. And in some cases, again, zoo animals or animals in laboratories. But so what I decided, at least I thought I was going to do and then ended up not doing, I was like, all right, so one of the cool things that's developing is this work with service dogs, which at the time is not anything like it is now, where I feel like they're so further exploited these days and the expectations are very unreasonable. But at the time, there was a lot of the best work that was being done in terms of dog behavior and signaling and communication and the most humane ways of working with them was coming out of an organization called the Delta Society. And the Delta Society is now defunct, Um, but they were holding conferences and they were talking about all of these issues as it relates to dog training, but also welfare and behavior. 
And then so I just started doing a lot of research on my own to fill in the gaps through that college experience, because a lot of it I had to do through independent studies and co cooperation with my professors there, to look at the very specific history of the human-dog relationship and all of the kinds of variables of that we would think about for welfare for animals in zoos and on farms in terms of what affordances do we have for them to express their natural behaviors and those conditions, what types of things are enriching, what types of things compromise welfare, what are our obligations to them. So a lot of ethical questions that are involved in applied ethology and welfare conversations that not only weren't happening at the time in the United States, frankly, largely still aren't, which is what's so interesting. I think we have this disconnect, like pet dogs couldn't possibly have welfare problems because they haven't made, they're living in the lap of luxury. And we have no recognition of the incredible pressure and the frustration and the resulting cost to their welfare that has come out of the modern average pet condition home. So let's talk about that a little bit. Is this a good time to to give an overview of legs? Sure, probably. Okay. <laughs> let's do um, that. Step back and put dogs and any captive animal really into a greater natural context, right? All animals on earth that are living in the in nature have what's called a phenotype. And that phenotype is the collection of all the variables that go into making them who they are and then therefore behaving the way that they do. And in nature, the measure, the value of importance is fitness to conditions so that you could survive and reproduce. So nature is always fine-tuning animals genetically. And then through their own experience, they're able to continue to provide feedback to this kind of evolutionary process of checks and balances where they're learning their own experiences in the environment. So L and E of legs, the learning in the environment, they're learning in that environment as an animal coming to this earth with the genetics that have been successful in prior generations. And then as an individual self, so those internal conditions of age, sex, nutrition, injury, illness, what have you, personality, all of these moving parts have to work collaboratively and cooperatively in order for that animal to be able to survive and reproduce. And nature's always selecting for what is fit to those conditions as the world constantly changes. Mm. So learning keeps it all moving and shifting so that animals can adapt. What happens for animals in captivity is that their legs become interrupted and can't, per can't participate in this dynamic feedback system that they would in nature because natural selection is no longer at the helm, because artificial selection takes over, because we control their breeding. So they are no longer able to solve problems generationally as a result of that. And then they don't have individual autonomy to adapt to their conditions in a way to improve their own welfare. So the dog can't decide, you know what, I'm really frustrated and I'm having an unmanageable level of of stress because I'm, I'm in this condo and I don't have the opportunity to follow through on these natural behaviors that an animal would need to. And the dog can't decide to take themselves to the park or out into the woods to go relieve that pressure. If there's something that's genetically not working in a certain breed of dogs, then dogs are not able to solve their way out of that health problem or welfare problem by choosing with him. They reproduce in nature, kind of solving that generationally. Because again, we're deciding that as well. The idea is to take what the system is, the structure of a phenotype, learning environment, genetics, and self for all species on earth, 
and also apply that to our domesticated animals and particularly our companion animals, our dogs, to recognize the effects and the cost for our dogs to their welfare and as by extension to us in our welfare and living with them because we're experiencing so many of these, quote, behavior problems that are really just evidence of imbalanced legs in the conditions of captivity. And we don't talk about this as a culture, and it's why the disconnect and the problems are getting worse over time. Why don't we talk about it, do you think? I think because we've been told that dogs are pets. We've been told that dogs' place by definition is at our side to be obedient to all of our wishes and our goals, whether that's to teach them some particular trick or to make them stop doing some behavior that's completely and totally natural and once adaptive and useful. And this narrative has been accidentally promoted throughout culture, whether that's on television and products being advertised in conversations with neighbors, et cetera, where we value this idea of control and obedience to get what we want out of this relationship, not recognizing that we are treating these lives like products with the value being what you do for me and how you reflect me and what I want you to do, where it's not this interchange where that animal's welfare is being either recognized appreciated or then met as it needs to be if we do actually love them as much as we say that we do. And it's nobody's fault, but it's definitely time to pull the curtain back on this and talk about welfare science as it relates to pet dogs, realizing that just giving them all of these luxurious provisions is not actually going to constitute good welfare. The gilded cage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think about the handmaid's tale as an example. I know it's really dark, but I think about this incredibly elaborate environment in theory that she, the main character, the heroine of the series, finds herself in where she's essentially a slave, but she's a very well cared for slave. And she gets to leave the house, but only under supervision and with very tight rules and serious consequences. And I think to say, how would I feel if is a really important and scientific question for us to be asking because we're also animals. And this idea of being in complete captivity is a very recent modern phenomenon of just the last few decades. But we think it's completely normal and dogs should be fine with those provisions. Yeah. Do you think that that's changing, really? Do I think that the welfare is changing, like getting worse or better? Do you think that the perception of dogs is changing for the better with this information that we have about them now? Are people going to hear this and say, yeah, I've heard this sort of thing before and I actually do agree with it. And what can I do to let my dog have a bit more freedom? Or is there a different answer? I do think that it's starting to improve but only in the last couple of years. I think we're at the beginning of even asking the right questions and we're far from having the right answers. There are some new things that are happening, some new projects like the Functional Dog Collaborative or Sniff Spots that are, I think, a reflection of our first steps of recognizing and understanding these phenomena. But it's far from common knowledge or common practice to be both breeding and relating 
providing for animals, our dogs, companion animals, in a way that reflects welfare value over obedience value. How how will that look, do you think? If it if everything were to sort of pan out the way you would like to see it, and I think probably the way the dogs would like to see it, what would that look like in reality to you? Because I think that it's pretty clear that we've probably are not going to be able in a lot of cities and a lot of even rural areas go back to letting dogs off leash and kind of roam in the neighborhoods like when we were kids. Um, although my neighbors haven't got that memo, their dogs still <laughs> roam in the neighborhoods just fine. But a lot of people would be uncomfortable with that. I had dogs that were, I had one dog particularly that was not comfortable with humans and it would made me very uncomfortable to let him run the neighborhood because I know that. He probably would have bit somebody if he was out there and surprised by somebody. So it's just, what does that look like today? And that's a big part of the pickle, right? I completely recognize that there's there's no realistic basis on which we will unleash the hounds again and let them do whatever it is that they would like to do like it was in my childhood in Atlanta. So that is not obviously an answer. And what that means is that we are in the position, having already played God and putting them in the situation that they are in and interrupting the system to the extent that we already have, we have to manufacture the same solutions to try to get them out of that situation. So I envision sniff spots becoming something and sniff spots and then some sniff spots being the beginning of that conversation, but then far more elaborate and enriched different environments where dogs are able to follow those inborn instructions and impulses to the point that they experience relief from that. I see a value shift away from compliance and towards partnership and welfare, where we raise dogs to have good life coping skills as opposed to fancy obedience that makes us look good. Like we let go of this whole idea of taking a dog to obedience training and we think, what are the core life skills that the dog is going to need to navigate this world? I see a world where we're breeding for physical health in, in addition to behavioral health. So we're saying, okay, we need to start really looking at what is in the gene pool and we need to start valuing the adaptation to our modern conditions and healthy adaptation to modern conditions over the romantic notions of breed standards and, you know, how high the ears are on the dog's head and, you know, what angulature of the back top line of the dog we have and what degrees those are and the length of coat or how sloppy the ears are or the shape of the tail. And we need to start thinking, what is working? What what dogs are resilient? What dogs are coping what dogs are rolling with this crazy, fast-paced modern world, and then realizing those need to be our new standards for reproduction. Because if we don't start selecting for what works the way nature would select for what works, dogs are going to get increasingly incapable of navigating these modern conditions. And how pretty they are isn't going to matter very much in the end. But Kim, how will we have our fancy dog competitions? That's we love our fancy dog competitions. I know, though. we love it. And 
it's really funny because like I talked about this at the aggression and dogs conference, but like people don't realize a lot of the historical roots of that stuff is ugly stuff that they really wouldn't agree with in the first place anyway. And I'm not trying to say I'm completely against all dog shows ever, but the whole concept of breed standards, I don't think it's useful. I don't think it's helping dogs or us anymore. I think that we have a lot of dogs in the gene pool that are not coping physically or behaviorally. And then we beat ourselves against a wall, beat our head against a wall. And we go to professionals and we're like, what's wrong with him? He must be a lemon. I'm going to blame it on the breeder's bad breeding of the particular breed that I have instead of recognizing we should fully expect that particular breed of dog to be having a difficult time in modern conditions based on the world that they were bred to perform and work in and live in the past. So I, I do, I think we might have to let go of some of those romantic notions of form and some of those romantic kinds of traditions that we have around dogs. Yeah. We need to really rethink and redefine our relationships with them. Yeah, absolutely. It's not done any dogs any favor. Certainly the issues around physical conditioning with tiny brain cases that cause headaches and brachycephalic faces with the snoring and all the distortions of body shape that are out there now. And that people really seem to enjoy looking at, but then don't realize how much of a physical and medical issue a lot of those really are when they start living with those dogs. But I don't know. I... Today, I am not feeling very positive about that future. Like, mm. I just see so much of that and so many people who see it. They live with a bulldog, for instance, and then they keep getting more bulldogs. They have that experience of how bad it is. The dog dies by age five. They have rotten their wrinkles because they have so many wrinkles and all of that. And then they get another bulldog. Yes. I actually had a client just a few months ago tell me that they had to put their bulldog down at five and how many thousands of dollars they spent over his lifetime dealing with megasophagus, eye issues, teeth issues, back issues, knee issues, cancer, only to then go get another bulldog. And I think it's weird because like we have to really look in the mirror. And this is why I think anthrozoology is such an important lens. And I'm so appreciative of that perspective of really looking at it. What's going on with us humans when we do this stuff? What is it about for us that makes us so intrigued by oddity and rare forms? It's like the weirder looking a dog is, the more novel it is, the more salient it sure. is, the more people are aroused by that. And I actually... I've made this point in terms of our obsession with weird behavior and all the weird stuff we train dogs to do too. People are the most impressed and most, hey, you look at that when they see a dog doing the most unnatural thing or when they see a dog colored or haired or built in a way they've never seen before. They're like, oh my gosh, what kind of dog is that? And it's really just this basic biological phenomenon that all animals have where we are aroused by saliency. Anything we're not expecting has this arousing effect on our nervous system. Mm. And so we're just like, that's surprising. And then we get intrigued and then we get drawn to this unnatural set of variables. And 
Now we're breeding dogs to greater and greater lengths that way. This whole like phenomenon with the toad line bullies is if it wasn't insulting enough to a bulldog to already have the health problems that most of them have. But let's make them toad line so that they basically are built like toads and their chests are so wide on these little bitty legs and their backs are so compromised that they basically look like little toads. Isn't that cute? And it's not cute, but we have this sick fascination. And I want to be optimistic because we have more traction. I've been literally shouting this message for almost 20 years. And we have finally in the last couple of years, people are even listening. People are interested. People are engaging in the conversation in the dog world. Am I concerned that it's not going to be enough? Absolutely. I'm concerned that the mainstream of culture is going the other direction. Yeah, that's I guess that's my concern as well. I really want to see somebody take humans, how they do that thing with animals without necks that that have you seen that meme and take humans and like mosh humans up into the shapes that we've moshed dogs up into. What would we look like if we looked like a chihuahua? It would be horrified. And that's realizing, for instance, just even breeding dogs to be smaller and smaller, like most people don't know that all toy breeds of dogs are genetically dwarves and they might carry one or up to three different types of dwarfism that we know of. There could be even more, but that that can come with certain health implications for dogs. And then when we're breeding them smaller and smaller and smaller, like what are we actually doing? They have the same, brachycephalic breeds are a great example too, because they have the same number of teeth, whether they're brachycephalic or whether they have a longer nose. And so then you're mashing all those teeth into that tiny little mouth. You know, my yes. husband was a vet tech for years and he largely did dentals and listening to him tell the stories, all the different breeds of dogs and how their teeth are so indicative of something like their fundamental health in the various breeds. And some breeds just have two rows of teeth because they don't all fit into themselves too. I think we have to get away from the narrative of dogs being products that are made for us. But I'm really concerned with the internet being the way that it is, that we're not going to be able to get away from that because it's just the Wild West out there and people can put anything they want on their websites. And social media promotes all the wrong ideas and attitudes and practices where they are our little court jester. They're here for our amusement. And frankly, the weirder they look and act, the more giggles people get out of it. It's a problem. Do we have any solutions, do you think, besides just continuing to have the conversation? You know, for me right now, I think that the most important thing, like with any goal, is acceptance. I think mainstreaming these kinds of conversations like we've had at the Aggression and Dogs Conference that we're having right now, I just finished up another podcast interview with someone who has a public-facing podcast, and we had a good conversation about it. Getting more and more people within the pet industry to have the courage to say it to their clients, have the courage to put it on their website, have the courage to have a paradigm shift in their own work, and getting the message out there, acceptance is the first thing. Because as long as we just maintain this denial, nothing's going to change. And we have to be compassionate to those that might have been getting it wrong or are still getting it wrong in that process. But we keep bringing this different paradigm, this different perspective to the mainstream because Lord knows we love our dogs and people are willing to invest in their dogs and they're meeting their needs. They spend obscene amounts of money doing it. And most of my clients 
once they hear the reality of the situation, have quite a remarkable, cathartic kind of experience with that dog. And that then sows the seeds for all of the dogs that they're going to have going forward. They just never knew these things. I think it's going to take an army of professionals and dedicated dog lovers to continue to put the right kind of information out there that can shift attitudes. But we are at the beginning of it, and it's going to take a boatload of work and a whole lot of people. It reminds me a little bit about the the sort of change to rescue animals versus breeders. It's sure. not that people don't get a lot of dogs from breeders still. And, and now there's even more emphasis on looking for knowledgeable and responsible breeders versus just any old breeder. But there is, and there became this kind of push towards looking at your rescues first, looking at your shelters first, and seeing if there was a dog there that would sort of fit your lifestyle rather than paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for a dog that, you know, is going to still come with whatever health issues and behavioral issues that they come with. And maybe it's like that. Maybe there will be just a subset of people who start asking breeders to be more ethical with their breeding choices and, and having breeders come out and say, here's how I make the choices on what dogs I breed rather than being a bit more secretive about it, which it seems like it's always been a bit more secretive of a process. And I know that there are really good breeders out there that are breeding dogs for healthy physical traits and healthy behavioral and emotional traits. But those do seem to be and in between. Yeah. I would like to see, although I'm not exactly sure what it would look like, I would like to see there being more restrictions on breeding. I would like to see the restrictions being that you're demonstrating that you are breeding for welfare. Yeah. I think when we're breeding animals as products, like we have to have some quality control in there, right? If it was any other product, if it was a drug we were putting out on the market or some supplement or something like that, like there'd have to be some kind of like FDA approval, right? Or something. Some some quality control that isn't so prohibitive that it's like overreach, but it's something that can start to put some standards in place. Yeah. Whereas right now, I don't think that we have any of that. We also have to really think about long game because sometimes efforts to steer the public eye in one direction can backfire. For instance, one of the reasons that we have increasingly so many bully breeds being bred so unhealthily to such crazy extremes mm. with physical traits is that when back in the day everyone was like oh pit bulls are bad nobody should have pit bulls and then the rescue community came out and was like everyone should have a pit bull they're the best dogs ever and it's amazing how many clients got their first pit bull at a rescue and now they're going to breeders to get their next ones mm. so it created a whole new demand right or a subset of the population that really increased the inventory or the population of those dogs. And then there's still a whole lot of people that don't want a dog that's going to be that strong, right? They don't want them the manageability of a powerful animal like that. And so how there's a reason that our shelters are largely filled with pities or some version thereof and hound dogs. You know? Um so I, I do have concerns about that. And I think that's one of the kind of cautionary notes that I've taken, at least from some of the things that have happened in the pet industry since I've been in it in the last 20 years, is that we have to be really mindful of the long game and try to think through all the potential implications of the things that we're 
suggesting or talking about or implementing is messaging. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I always felt like there should be a licensing for owning pets. Yes. Like a li- like a driver's license. Like a driver's license. Yeah. You had no. to take a class to yes. learn about how to care for a hamster or a dog or a right. cat or anything. And people, I think most people at least understand that a horse is not an easy animal to care for and maybe they need to know something specific. And so they take lessons. But most people don't do that when they go out and grab a horse or a cat or a hamster or a mouse or anything like that. And they just assume they'll figure it out along the way. And I know that's how I grew up, too. I had a lot of animals that I had to figure out along the way. And they suffered for that. Mm-hmm. They That <clears throat> trial by error meant that the error was deadly for a yes. lot of pets. And maybe your next one will have a slightly better life. But... It wouldn't be great if people could learn from the errors that everybody else has already made and actually take a class. Yes. I would love if it was required. It would be nice if it was just available, though. Here's a possibility. Here's a class about hamsters. You don't have to read a book. It's just this class that you get signed up for when you get a hamster from the pet store or they, they send you a link for it. And now a quick break to give a shout out to two of the audience members at my talk at this year's Animal Care Expo 2023. They were enthusiastic listeners and deserve a shout out. The first is Leela Tennyson. I hope I pronounced that right. Board member of Furry Friends Rock and Rescue in Bismarck, North Dakota. Furry Friends is a nonprofit animal rescue founded in 2015 by a group of Bismarck Animal Impound volunteers. The second shout out goes to Jennifer DeFoss, Public Relations for It Takes a Village Rescue and Resources, Muscatine, Iowa. Their organization is built around the idea of community and the belief that working together, they can be a force of goodness and positive change in the world of animal welfare. Thank you both so much for being listeners and for everything you're doing for animals in your communities. Now, if you listen to my talk or were part of the roundtable discussions and haven't heard your name in the shoutouts, send me a message at thedealwithanimals.com and I'll be sure to get you and your organization a shout-out in one of the upcoming episodes. Next, I promised you a little bit more detail about some new offerings on the Deal With Animals website. This is a new page called Consult Services right next to the newsletter button at the top of the page. If you click on the consult services, you'll get a list of services that I'll be offering to beginner podcasters in the animal welfare and advocacy space to start their own podcast and to be the first to be invited to the Deal With Animals podcast network. So if you've been thinking about starting your own podcast, but you're not sure where to start, or you just want to have a quick chat just to see how it might work at no cost, you can go to that button and schedule a time for a chat with me, Marika Bell, your favorite anthrozoologist slash dog trainer slash podcast host slash coach. You get the idea. I can't wait to hear from you. And the part of the problem is that like the in the dog training and behavior industry that's really been counterproductive to that. It reminds me of modern politics. Like we fail to get stuff done because we're so busy pointing fingers at each other and making wrong the other side or whatever. But dog trainers have spent the last two decades just throwing darts at each other about the way that they train instead of collaborating to try to put together resources like that where you don't have to get into the how you train part in a course it just tells people like these are the things that you need to know if you're going to have a dog that go beyond you know 
take them to an obedience class, take them to a veterinarian to get their shots, walk them out to go to the bathroom, like feed them some dog food. Like we've been given this weird checklist of things for dogs that are not remotely exhaustive, comprehensive, sufficient. There's a bare minimum. Yeah. Bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought was really nice when I was, when I started my dog training business, I was in New Zealand and I sort of reached out to a lot of the other trainers and I found that there, a lot of the trainers were very helpful. We didn't always use the same techniques. Most of them were still positive trainers. There were a few that weren't, and those tended to be sort of outliers that did their own thing and that nobody really talked to. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a community the way that the positive reinforcement focused trainers did. And they also had this real focus on dog clubs. So this was something that I thought was a really interesting history of New Zealand that didn't happen here in the U.S. is that it was actually so they would have dog shows, but it was illegal to have your dog professionally trained for a dog show. Hmm. Yeah, it was against their the rules of the dog show, not illegal against the rules. Yeah, so they would start dog clubs. So every town has its own dog club and they have their own training grounds that are generally open to the public. That are off leash areas open to the public that are fenced, where they meet every week, and they still do this, they meet every week, and they practice obedience, and they practice whatever other fun training that they want to do. A lot of them are more geared now towards rallyo or different sort of um, more fun activities, I think, than strict obedience tends to be. And, uh, And they practice with each other, and they learn from each other, and none of them are considered professional trainers until very recently, where they got rid of that rule and now of course people can just train their dog any way they like and then they can join these competitions but there's just this history of having it be a community thing community learning experience and again when i was there most people were using positive reinforcement training already there were still some maybe holdovers but even those people because they were part of the community learned how much better it was to do things in a more positive way and started leaning that direction So it was a nice, it was a nice uh, experience, I think, for me when I was there to discover that and figure out how it worked. When I moved back to the U.S., there wasn't that expectation of a community dog area. But the trainers in the U.S., and I was on the East Coast, still were very community oriented. They were very helpful. If somebody didn't have space to take a client in one area, they would reference somebody else really nicely and and I really I enjoy that about the dog training community in general it is very open and very willing to collaborate Mm -hmm. and so I feel like that's a positive that's a optimism for the future I think if we can continue with that and bring more people into that and that understanding and get the information out there that yeah. those people who are already collaborating are going to be able to continue to do that with even more information. Yeah. And I feel like that's changed a lot in the last few years towards that positive direction that you described. I did not feel like the dog training industry has been what you just described for most of my career. For most of my career, I felt like it's been highly competitive, highly critical, a lot of just insular, clicky, infighting. But something has really changed in the last few years. And I'm seeing a level of collaboration and cooperation and 
mutual support that's very inspiring. But at the same time, I also, I don't know how much of this is uniquely American, but I feel like the, for all of the progress that part of our industry has made towards valuing um, humane treatment of dogs, I feel like the momentum in the other direction has just grown as well. And we have more people willing to compromise a dog's welfare for obedience and control than even, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So that's something interesting to reconcile societally, right? It's like there's a maybe a split happening that we humans have hacked learning and animals, right? We've hacked how learning works. The whole learning theory system, all the principles of behaviorism, we have figured it out and we can exploit it to phenomenal ends to change behavior. And sometimes we don't ask why or whether we should be doing that in the first place. So even through positive means, we have to recognize that training and behavior modification is invasive, right? When someone conditions us, that's invasive. Marketing is one of the ready examples that I usually give. It's like we're constantly being marketed to by things on our phone, television, internet, et cetera, out there in the world. And that changes our behavior, our thinking, how we feel in really significant ways, largely against our will, that doesn't necessarily have any improvement of our welfare. And so I think a lot of the things that humans are so proud of themselves that they've been able to get dogs to do or not do that impress us so are things that really need to be questioned on a fundamental basis, whatever methods are getting them there. Like we need to stop and really show more restraint before we put on that trainer hat. And I'm scared that bit's running in the other direction. People are just getting dogs to do more and more crazy stuff. And look, I can get it to walk backwards on a tightrope yeah. blindfolded. And you're like, but why? Mm -hmm. Unless that's a dog who's going to be in those conditions and need to have that skill set. Okay. But there's a lot of things that people are getting dogs to do just because they're so intrigued by it. It's that attraction to the oddity thing again. Yes. And then we get drunk with our own power. And like, we have to be willing to look in the mirror and talk about stuff, even when it's uncomfortable. So the Aggression and Dogs Conference that you had this great talk in that talked, you brought up a lot of these points. Your talk was called Screw the Pooch. Ethology explains the masterpiece of natural selection and the mess of artificial selection in the modern canine aggression cases. And it was really as you i think you refer to it as a bookend to what mike was talking about at the very beginning of the 2022 conference which was how we can look at free roaming dogs and say if this is how dogs would want to live if this is if this is how dogs would choose to live how can we help them do more of that how can we increase their welfare and increase the welfare of the dogs that are essentially captives in our home and in our lives even when they want to be give them the opportunity to be more free living, even when in our society now they, they really can't just be a village dog anymore. Yeah. So with all of your takeaways and the things you got from the conference, what would you say was the overall understanding from the audience? Do you think that the audience took that away and are going to change and be able to do anything with the information or is it just something for them to think about for now? I do actually, 
think that people are changing what they're doing. It's amazing just since I've launched the course a little more than a year ago now, and then through subsequent events like that conference, people are coming up to me and they're saying, either I already have, or I'm going to completely change all of my programs. And so people like within our student group, we have about 1200 students now worldwide. A lot of people have completely changed their websites, their materials, redesigned all their programs, shifted their entire approach to being a dog trainer as a result of this information and with phenomenal outcomes for their clients. They're just like, they cannot believe how much improvement that they can exact in the dog's behavior by improving their welfare, right? Instead of thinking like it's either or, either you're going to have good welfare and out of control wild dogs, or you're going to have bad welfare and well-behaved dogs. When we meet their needs, the behavior problems start to diminish because those are the evidence of the compromised welfare. As people are really adopting it and integrating it and more and more, I think then that bolsters the confidence of others to follow in those footsteps. This isn't some fringe idea out on a limb. We can actually approach as professionals dog behavior in a way that gets to the heart of the problem and has better results, but not by training or making compliance, even through more humane methods, but by actually understanding what is or isn't working for the dog in their life, in their legs. And with the human's legs, so all those things considered, that idea of shifting from this top-down approach of obedience trainer, programming dog to be compliant to human goals, the idea of family dog mediation, where you each species, each party has equal value, although very different legs. And then we have to make those legs function together in a cooperative fashion for everyone's sake. Um, So... You know, a year and a half ago, I would have said, I'm crossing my fingers and spitting into the wind and hoping that things go well. And now I can look back and say things are actually working and they're changing and we have some momentum. And time will only tell whether it's enough, right? I, I, I really love what Mike Shikashio has done and I've tried to do the same thing in my group. Instead of creating this idea that there are these people that belong on soapboxes telling everyone else how it is, that we can collaborate and partner together and bring forth by opening doors all this incredible talent and insight and experience within the professionals that we work with so that together we can have an army of people who can really make a difference. But it's going to take some real time. Let me ask you, if there was a book that you could gift to all of the listeners, what would that be? Last Child in the Woods by Richard Luth. The sub title of that being Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. And the reason that I select that is because I think it really does something to our appreciation of what has happened for dogs when we see what has happened for us and we can reflect upon our own increasingly compromised welfare with the rate of environmental change that has occurred and the increasing restrictions that we have had for children and the loss of connection to nature and other species that has occurred for us as a point of reference for the historical phenomenon that our species have experienced together over the last few decades. We are living in this incredibly unique point in history for us and for dogs, where the world that we're living in bears 
basically no resemblance at all to the world 150 years ago. You know, we went from being almost entirely agrarian and outdoor living and working to almost entirely urban, indoor, inactive, sedentary, disconnected from nature and each other lifestyles. And there are really profound implications of that for all of us. I feel like that book really can connect dots for people in a way that they hadn't thought about before that makes some of this resonate on a deeper level if they haven't already experienced it with their own dog. Hmm. Would you share an early childhood formative memory of your connection with animals? Yeah, I... I often will share with folks my childhood growing up in Atlanta, major U.S. city, right close to downtown, where the dogs were still loose. And um, those experiences that I had as a young budding ethologist then of just observing their behavior where I wasn't controlling their behavior. They weren't on leashes. I wasn't telling them what to do. They all were pets and had families, but they all had autonomy during the day as well. So I had a quite a few really amazing experiences with the dogs in my neighborhood growing up that definitely sowed the seeds for what I'm doing now. Can you describe one of those experiences? Yeah, one of them was, my mom loves to tell this story, but it's very interesting how clear it still is in my memory, but there was a great day that lived next door. His name was Marmaduke. And I was buddies with him when I was little a toddler. And then I want to say it was probably around when I was like five or six when this happened. Um, kids were looser then too. So I was around the neighbor's houses and stuff. Even as a little kid, I could go in and out of their backyards and stuff. And one day I was in my neighbor's yard hanging out with Marmaduke or hanging out actually with my own dog. And I saw that Marmaduke was standing at some bushes with his head and shoulders in the bushes just standing there and I thought this is so weird and I remember I was trying to get him out because I was worried because he was just standing there I was trying to look and see if he was hunting something or whatever and something struck me that something was very wrong and I went home and I told my mom mommy Marmaduke's gonna die and I don't remember where that idea came from but I just remember stepping back and looking at the situation and realizing his behavior was just so different from everything I'd ever seen him do. And I went home and I reported to my mom that he was going to die and then he died the next day. And I think it, it stuck with me because it's one of those examples of the knowledge that we dismiss in ourselves, like the observational skills and the kind of knowing and the connection and the even synchronizing of nervous systems that we and dogs have and share that we dismiss so readily where humans have been living with dogs for 10 to 40,000 years. And so we have a lot of inborn ability to relate with and understand them as they do us. And we tend to just throw all that away in favor of this kind of control and obedience and pet model. But anyway, so that was a very formative experience for me. Wow. Did you ever find out what happened to him? No, I think it was just old age. He was an older dog. And I think, I'm not sure why. And it's not something that you hear about a lot, like a dog just standing in the bushes if they're going to die. But it was, his demeanor was such, that was the young kid in me took that away. And 
And yeah, it was odd that that happened. But yeah, I think it was just old age. Yeah, that's really interesting that you were able to pick up on that at such an early age. But I think think we don't give kids enough benefit of the doubt either, right? I think (laughs) that's absolutely true too. Yeah, because when I was a kid, I was definitely more interested in what animals were doing than what humans were doing. And I would have picked up on any little odd thing that had happened. I'm not sure I would have, what conclusions I would have come to. I think a lot about, I talk about this in our main, in the main course too, that like in nature, I think it's highly adaptive and necessary for animals to be able to see each other clearly and to be able to have theory of mind. Like theory of mind is so not something that's unique to human. So the idea that I can see you, whether you're a conspecific or the same species or not, I need to be able to, as accurately as possible, assess what's going on for you, what your intentions are, what your needs are, you know, what your feelings are, because that bears on my own safety, right? And my own welfare and being and maybe my own behavior. And I think we tend to just we've dumbed down the animals and our cultural projections of them and we think they're not possibly capable of seeing things seeing us seeing each other seeing other animals as clearly as they do but their their survival would very much depend on that and so i feel in our human minds as we often do we get so into the overthinking things that we like miss what's right in front of us and i think Animals and children have less mess in their way, prohibiting them from seeing things as they are. And they can just know things without having to overthink them. And so picking up on when something's wrong, simply because you're paying enough attention to see it, I think is a skill that we're increasingly losing in our modern world. And we're getting more lost in that kind of manufactured truth reality and not seeing what's often right in front of us. That's really what ethology is, isn't it? It's paying attention to behavior. Yes. That's really what it is, observing and seeing things as they are in the animal's behavior in front of you with the understanding of nature's laws and principles Mm -hmm. and systems so that then that gives a context for why what you're observing might be happening in the first place. So what's the deal with animals? (laughs) It's funny with when I read that title, I really like it because I love plays on words and stuff. Right. And I, the reason that I, what stuck out to me about it is just great is deal. There's a bunch of different connotations that, and we can interpret that a bunch of different ways, but I, that's why I like the concept of family dog mediation. And the idea when I'm working with my clients, it's that we're creating a contract. We're creating an agreement like every relationship should have. And so I think particularly when we are in the position of captor and they are in the position of captive, we have a burden as their keepers to be mindful of the deal. What is the deal when it should be a give and take, right? It should be a, there's an exchange of needs being met. And I think sadly, we're living in a world where increasingly there is no deal with animals. It's just, it's just an exploitive relationship. And I think humans have been on that trajectory for a long time. I don't think it's just now, but I think we have just bought into the idea that we have this right, this dominion over all these other species that are on earth and they're here for us to exploit as we see fit. 
And so we don't see them as even warranting being in a deal with us, being in that kind of compromise exchange where both parties' interests matter. And I would like to see things increasingly move towards a model where it is, in fact, a deal. We make a deal and we are good on our side of it and asking the same with that in a way that's functional and healthy for everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you about applied ethology and all your work in that area. It's really fantastic. Thank you again for having me on. We hope this conversation with Kim Brophy has given you a new perspective on how animals adapt and thrive in their environment and the implications of artificial selection on their genetics and behavior. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and please consider becoming a patron. Go to thedealwithanimals.com and sign up for the newsletter for more info. I'm your host, Marika Bell, and I'd like to thank Kai Stranskoff for the theme music and Natasha Matsart for editing and the newsletter. You can get links to guest book recommendations as well as all their website and affiliated organizations in the show notes and thedealwithanimals.com. Thank you for joining me as we try to answer the question, what's the deal with animals? What do you think is The Deal with Animals? The Deal with Animals is part of the IROR Animal Podcast Network.